Absolutely beautiful. Thank you so much, Natalie and worship team. Good morning. Good to see you all. I've met uh, a few visitors this morning, so not all of you know me real well, but if you know me just a little bit, you probably figured out I like to laugh quite a bit. I enjoy a good, clean joke, and I enjoy sometimes when they're not so clean. But um, yeah, and so whenever I can find a good, clean joke, that matches the message of the day. I get really excited. And I found this joke. It's an old joke, so I apologize if some of you have already heard it. It was voted as the funniest religious joke ever. Right? It it has some detail to it, so I have to kind of read it. It's told, it was told by Emo Phillips. If you know him, he's perhaps the weirdest comedian out there, but I'm not going to do it his style. I'll just do it my own. But he tells the story. Once I saw this guy on a bridge and he was about to jump and I said, don't do it. And the individual said, nobody loves me. And I said, well, God loves you. Do you believe in God? And the guy on the bridge, he said, yes, I do. I said, oh, are, 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 you, are you a Christian? Are you Muslim? Uh, are you Jewish? He said, I'm a Christian. I said, well, well so am I. That, that's great. Um, and God loves you. That, that's the message of, of Christianity. I said, are you a, a Protestant or a Catholic? He said, I'm a Protestant. So am I, I said. I said, are you a part of a denomination? He, he said, yes, I'm Baptist. I said, so am I. I said, are you Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? He said, well, I'm Northern Baptist. Me too. This this was meant to be. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist or Northern Liberal Baptist? He said, well, I'm, I'm Northern Conservative Baptist. I said, unbelievable. That is me too. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region? Or you Northern Conservative Baptist Eastern Region? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region. I said, that, I just, this is meant to be. This is providential. Amazing. Are you Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or Northern Conservative Baptist Lakes, uh, Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? He said, Northern Conservative Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. I said, oh, die you heretic. And I pushed him off the bridge. <laughs> well, that was a mouthful. Yeah. We are talking about a subject this morning that as Americans we are not very good at. We, we stumble and fail. And I would love to say that even though Americans generally are not good at this, I would love to say that um, American Christians are much better than the culture surrounding us. But I don't think that is the case, unfortunately. I think that the Christian church in this instance does not seem to rise above culture, but in fact are far more influenced 
by culture, unfortunately. We are talking about unity. We, we are talking about um, the ability, the, the, actually the call of the gospel is staying unified and together, remaining in deep connection with one another. Establishing those deep connections, wrestling through and maintaining those deep sacred friendships in Christ. The bitterness and division in our nation right now is, is very high. I, I, I can't, uh, if you look just politically, I can't remember of time when our nation has stood so divided, right? So demonization of the other person and, and hatred and bitterness. Would you say also that's true of the American church? Perhaps not as much bitterness. Perhaps we're getting a little bit better. Um, but yet there's still a deep divide. A conservative estimate is that in our nation, the United States alone, there's over 200 denominations in the United States. That doesn't include the numerous non-denominational churches or house churches. Doesn't include the non-Orthodox denominations. Worldwide, it's estimated that there are 33,000 denominations. I, I don't know how they got to that. It seems inconceivable to me that there's that many, but I read it on Google, so it must be true. It seems like the Christian way is if you have a disagreement of any kind, you simply go to another church or you start another church or you start another denomination. That's at least part of our history in the United States. And that idea stands so contrary to the heart and prayers of Jesus Christ that we're going to talk about this morning, we have been walking through this beautiful prayer of Jesus. People often call it the high priestly prayer of Jesus found in the Gospel of John in chapter 17. If you'd open there with me, there's Bibles uh, provided underneath the seats in front of you. And we're walking through this prayer, and it's been beautiful to see Jesus is about to face the cross. He's about to be resurrected and then ascend to heaven, as we'll celebrate in Easter. And it's in this chapter that he leans in and prays for his disciples. We've been looking at the different ways that he has prayed for his disciples, uh, primarily praying for those, those first century disciples, those that he had uh, brought into the faith. But we believe those prayers are absolutely for us. So we've been looking at his emphasis on that he defines eternal life in this prayer incredibly. And he says, essentially, it is to know God the Father, a personal relationship, it's, that's eternal life. He, he prays for revelation, that we would be a people of truth and, and knowledge and understanding. He prays for protection and spiritual authority. Remember, we talked about to be in the world, but not of the world, a sanctification, a set apart 
that we would be in on mission, that we would hear his call, that we would find his call in our lives. Um, And then he turns, we're going to see, we're going to read, start in verse 20. And he actually turns in this prayer from praying for the first century disciples to you and me specifically. And he is going to choose one particular emphasis of prayer. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that intriguing? Like in this incredible moment when he's going to be praying for all the generations of Christians to come that from as the apostles proclaim the gospel as the as Christian faith spreads he's going to pray for all the disciples to follow from that moment on and he's going to zero in on one thing that must be a pretty important one thing isn't it must be crucial to the faith and center of his heart for you and I. Let's pray. As we read these few verses, Jesus, of your prayer, would you illuminate our hearts, our minds, our spirits? Lord, wherever we're at in our personal lives, would you help us to hear what you have for us individually and what you have for us corporately? Lord, would you help me not get in the way? Would you help my words not get in the way? Would you help me to align my words with what you're saying to us? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Amen. Just a few verses. We're going to read, starting at verse 20 of John chapter 17, going through 23. Jesus prays, My prayer is not for them alone, those first century disciples. I pray also for those who will believe in me, through their message, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. There's a simplicity to that prayer, isn't it? Complete unity, oneness. And yet there is this theological depth and richness that I don't want us 
to miss. Did you see how Jesus is defining this idea of oneness? Did you see, did you hear in the, in the beautiful language what he's basing this idea of complete unity upon? Did you hear it? It's the connection of the Father and the Son their unity, their oneness, their intimacy is not only a model for our intimacy, our unity, and our oneness that we get to see how close the God had this divine community as some has called it, the, the connection and the closeness and the intimacy of God, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says, this is my heart for you, that you would be this close as we, me and the Father, the Spirit, are this close so you would be close. Like that. And yet the analogy goes farther. He says not only is the, the, the unity of the Godhead the picture for us. But he's saying I'm inviting you all. All the disciples that follow. Not just be united with one another. But in this divine community. God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you would be one with us. As I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, so that we would be in you. Sacred community. What a, a vision. What a longing, what a prayer that Jesus not only prayed so long ago, but I believe, right, he's interceding for us right now. That's part of his ministry. I wonder what, how he intercedes for us. I think the first prayer he has, we just read, he's praying right now for this unity, for this intimacy, for this complete sacred oneness, an incredible call, an incredible picture. And there's a great sadness over me when I think of this being the one prayer that Jesus prays for the disciples who would follow and it seems like we fail so miserably again and again and again. I certainly don't think in this message we can solve the issue of denominations. But I think we can hear his call to be people who, who press into this divine unity that we ourselves can say, what can I do not to live the bitterness and the divisiveness and the separation? What can I personally do to press into and fulfill the prayer of Jesus that he prayed then and that he's praying now? I think we can do that, can't we? Can we, we think about that and process it? I want to suggest that part of the reason we struggle so much 
with this divine unity is that in the history of the church, there's been two major ways that we've um, mistakenly lived out in the name of unity this way. There's been a, a legalistic conformity way and there's been a liberal anything goes way. And, and that Christ is calling us to neither extreme but that we would find this center, this, this radical middle of unity in the midst of that continuum. Let me, let me explain what I mean. Let, let's talk about first one side of the continuum. I want to talk a little bit about what unity is not. One is I don't believe that Jesus intentioned this prayer to mean a legalistic conformity. Many times in the history of the church, you've had leaders or movements that begin to insist upon a conformity to even the smallest theology or practice or perspective. Some of you know what I mean. Some of you have been part of those legalistic um, uh, movements or churches. When I was a, uh, my first year after college and I was serving as a college pastor at the university, I was living in Galesburg, Illinois, and I connected with this young adult. His name was Daniel. We were about the same age. And he had a heart for the campus that I was reaching out to, Knoxville. And so we started uh, loving on students together. And he was part of a church plant in Galesburg. So I decided I, I love church plants, love when they're small and pressing in. So I decided to connect with Daniel and this church plant. Why well, I, I soon found out in this over the course of a year that they were connected to a large church in Kansas City. And this large church in Kansas City had some accusations that they were cult-like. And some of the reasons why they had um, uh, these accusations were because they called for conformity in just about everything. So there was a, a, the, the translation of the Bible. Right? They, they used the King James Version of the Bible. Not the new King James Version of the Bible, but the King James Version. And, and they were doing some good gospel work. I, I, I saw them. I saw one young adult, he had converted, to, they had led him to Christ, which was a, a great story. And they got him reading the Bible, and I saw him struggling with the these and the thous. I was like, Daniel, can't we just get him a modern translation? It's so much easier. And he's like, no, 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 this is the only translation that really is legit. As a nonconformist, I did some research. <laughs> and I brought to Daniel, not the leadership of the church plant, but I said, hey, you know, this is what, how translations are, happen, and you've got a continuum, and let's do that. Nope, he wouldn't buy it, wouldn't buy it. The, the, the messages felt stale and a little bit dry. And I found out that the, the, the church planting pastor, he was reading transcripts from the messages of Kansas, from the Kansas City Church. 
That was a little disconcerting to me. Daniel had married young, unfortunately, and his marriage was struggling, and he was actually very afraid. He was, his, his wife had left. He didn't know what was going to happen, but he just said, you know, there's no, no excuse. There's no, no reason that divorce is allowable in the church and leaders in the church. And I said, you know, Daniel, absolutely God hates divorce. He loves marriage. He calls us to fight for our marriage. Fight, fight, fight. But you know, there, there are some biblical exceptions like Jesus talks about marital unfaithfulness. He said, no, no, no. There's no reason for a divorce. I opened the Bible. And I turned to the, some of the exceptions. Some would talk about abandonment or adultery or abuse. And he almost robotically, no, there's no it's like, Daniel, I, I respect spiritual the- leadership, but I, I'm going to go with Jesus and scripture over the leadership. Daniel was talking about these quiet times, and he had these partic- particular highlighters that he used, that he used in his Bible. And I was thinking to myself, please don't let them be from Kansas City. Please don't be from Kansas City. Please don't. And he's like, and the good thing is, Eric, you can only buy these in Kansas City. And I'm like, I think I'm out. I think I'm out. Now, were they unified? Yeah, right? Is that the unity that Jesus was praying for? I don't think so. I don't think, I hope not, <laughs> right? So yes, we are in trouble. There, there's not this, this legalistic unity. Uh, Paul says this. He says um, in different places like Titus 3, he says, avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law. Because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn them a second time. After that, have nothing to do with them. What he's saying is don't get lost. And a number of times when he's talking about the gospel, he's saying don't get lost on these individual things. A, a phrase that you can use that I, I think works here is he's saying don't major on the minors. That there are some things that are, are minors, that, 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 don't, that aren't crucial to the gospel. And you don't argue about those. You don't divide over those. You don't wrestle over those. Unfortunately, the church is littered with arguments and breaking and division over minor controversies. And we should not do that. I learned a principle in seminary that I still hold on to and I think about a lot. It's this idea of a cone of clarity. It says, if you look at scripture, there's some issues that scripture is really, really strong on, right? If it's a zero to a hundred on the cone, it's really, really high, okay? But there's other issues 
that's not in the 90s, that are not up there, that scripture is not super clear, and that you allow that percentage, you recognize that percentage, and you don't divide, and you don't argue over those things. I'll give you a, a, a few examples. Infant baptism, the sacrament of baptism, yes, it's important. Yes, we should discuss and wrestle with this. Yes, I've had people leave the church because we practice infant baptism. We also practice believer baptism, as most of you know. But I would say that that is a low percentage in my understanding of Scripture. I can make a biblical and theological argument from covenant theology for infant, infant baptism. I think there's a beauty in love. But I also have good friends of different denominations that would argue, actually I have good friends within the Reformed denomination. They don't practice infant baptism because they can make a strong biblical argument for believers' baptism only, okay? What I say in the, in the, parent, uh, the kingdom partners classes, let's not divide over our understanding of the sacrament, especially because we can make arguments for both sides. If you, when I talk with people about infant baptism, I said, if you want to have your infant baptized, we'll talk about that and, and I explain that. But if you don't, that's okay. My parents did not believe in infant baptism. I wasn't baptized as an infant. I do believe in infant baptism, so I baptized my kids as infants. If the elders were to come to me and say, Eric, we don't want to do infant baptism, you know what I would say? Okay. That's how, how spirit's directing. I, I don't want to divide over that. Can we talk about end times theology? As part of the partner's class, we're going to talk about amill, pre-mill, and post-mill. And if you are not amill, you're out. <laughs> no, we're not going to do that, are we? Right? I, I'm like, that's like 25% on the cone of clarity. Right? Now, I love end times. I love thinking and reading. I, I'm actively reading. I, I like discussing. I, I think there's power in end times theology. We should talk, talk about it. I, from time to time, I preach on it. But I'm not going to divide over that. Right? One friend who left another denomination because they were locked solid in a view of end times that he disagreed and they essentially helped him out because he had a different view on end times theology. So I said, listen, brother, just I, I'm, a, I'm a pan mill. It all pans out in the end, right? <laughs> we don't know the details. We're about to do communion, do you know the, the history of the church is riff with, with is the, the, the actual presence of Christ, does the bread become the body? Does the juice or wine become the blood? Is, it, is, is the presence of Christ in the elements or is it uh, next to the elements or is it simply symbolic? Uh, really? Come on. 
Jesus, prayer of unity, don't get lost in that. Now, I would say this. The church is guilty of majoring in the minors, but also minoring in the majors. You're going to think I'm talking out the other side of my face here, but another thing is this idea of, of liberalism where anything you believe goes. Facing that a little bit in our denomination. Unity does not mean the lack of sound doctrine. That according to scripture, what we believe matters. That we are to talk about what is true about God and us and the world and the gospel, that there are false gospels out there and it matters and we need to address that. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when, when Jesus, the ascended Jesus, speaks to the seven churches and he affirms and blesses all seven, but also usually gives a word of correction or challenge of two churches, he said there is false false doctrine going on and you have not addressed it. That's not okay. In fact, uh, in the church of Pergamum, he says this, likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent therefore. He's saying it's not okay. We can't get into all the Nicolaitan theology, but he's saying you need to address that. When Paul is talking to Timothy again and again, he says address those things. Doctrine matters. I want to suggest this might sound like I'm, I, I'm, I'm being contrary to what I just said. There are things that Christ would call us to challenge and if they're not rectified, to divide over. I know it's a, a, a continuum here. Our new house, I've already had a Jehovah Witness knock on our door and give me an invitation to Easter. I think I'm going. No, I'm just kidding. That's Now, does that mean that I, I'm not going to love a Jehovah Witness. Of course I'm going to love them. In conversation, engage them. Yeah, absolutely. But I'm not going to invite them into a leadership position in my church if on that cone of clarity, the deity of Christ and the Trinity is so high. That that's part of orthodoxy, right? We did the Apostles' Creed. We did that intentionally. Because when there is a theology that it diverts from that orthodox faith, we need to talk about it. We need to address it. We need to say, yeah, it's not a, well, you believe what you believe, and I believe what I, and we're all good. Is that the unity that Christ is talking about? No. It's not. So friends, yes, I, I get there's a, a dynamic here that's challenging, but I, I believe, again, those two sides, those two aspects we need to be mindful of. A, a, a legalism that, that brings in the details of that, but also a liberalism that says anything goes. So how do we live in that center? Just two suggestions 
of living. They're both based on love, how we love one another. One is this, is that we, at least in the Christian church, can't really talk about politics in the nation, just talking about unity in the Christian church. We need to love one another as each one is in Christ. Let me try and put it a few different ways. We need to respect the presence of God in each one. We need to respect that each person has the spirit of Christ in them. That each one, each Christian, has the voice of God in them. Each one has gifts. Each one has calling. Each one has been set aside for a purpose. Each one has this invitation to serve as part of the family business as we talk so much about. And we need to recognize, even though I'm a pastor, I need to recognize that each and every one of you, if you are a follower of Christ, in the kingdom of God, I don't get to go, yeah, I think you should do this. Right? but that I want to nurture the presence and the voice of God in each individual. That that, that, that should be my leadership style as a pastor, that, that I should recognize that Christ is working. The Apostle Paul, in just a kind of a side comment, he was talking about uh, marriage and singleness and he's encouraging if people are single that it's good to remain single, right? So that, that a lot of people want to get married and all those kind of things. And, and he just kind of says this matter-of-factly after that. He says in 1 Corinthians seven forty, he says, in my judgment, she, the widow, uh, the, the single gal, is happier if she stays as she is. And then he goes, and I think that I have the spirit of God, right? I, two, also, like he's saying, the spirit of God is speaking through me, right? So, so you should listen. Isn't that true of everyone? No, no matter how young in the faith you are, if you are in the faith, you have the spirit of God. You have a journey that you're on. And your journey might look a little bit different than mine. I want to respect and honor that journey that you're on. I don't want to dictate to you as if you don't have a personal relationship with Christ. Because you do. Right? That, that should affect Paul gets into this on minor issues, like the, the big, one of the big issues in the church was, should we eat food sacrificed um, to gods, right? Should, should we eat food that way? Some were saying, absolutely not. And others were like, I think it's okay. You know what Paul's perspective was? Yes. Either way. Don't divide. Don't divide. Wrestle through. And if someone is wrestling with that in their own conscience and you're okay, well, then don't eat food sacrificed to them in front of them. 
honor their journey. The use of alcohol is, I think, one of those things. When I was a young pastor, I, I talked about the use of alcohol from the pulpit, right? And I had this dear, sweet saint come up afterwards. She asked for a meeting, and then she talked about how she didn't believe Christians should drink alcohol. So, you know, we talked about some scripture. I talked about Jesus' first miracle in the Gospel of John. It was wine, good wine. There's evidence that there was an alcohol content there. And I learned, I, I said, you know, I'm not gonna flippantly mention alcohol from the pulpit. I, I apologize, I, I shouldn't have done that. And I made the commitment never to drink or do anything in front of her. She was part of our church plant and community of faith, right? And another uh, leader today, and he said, listen, my background, Eric, is um, we're, we hang out socially sometimes. He said, my preference, would you honor um, not drinking alcohol? No problem. We're good. I don't, I don't, if this is anything that, that causes you to stumble, don't divide on. I have a different perspective of alcohol. If it's done responsibly, it's okay. If it's done legally, it's okay. And you might have a different perspective, but don't divide over those things. Yes? Allow things that are on the lower part of the, 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 the cone of clarity. Allow Each person has their own journey and their own way. There's a, a number of leaders were telling me the story, uh, a new convert to Christ and baseball was his idol. Statistics and all of that, and he followed all the teams. He gave to Christ, and he gave that all up. They hadn't known that, and they uh, got tickets to a, a major league baseball team, and they're all excited. They're like, "Come on!" He's like, "No, you can't go to baseball. That's an idol." What'd they do? They said, "You're out." Of course they didn't. They said, "Oh, we." You didn't realize that. We'll allow that. This idea of allowing some diversity in discussion and wrestling through, not dividing over this, but, but having a conversation, wrestling through the important things. Now, again, my second suggestion is going to sound very, very contrary. Right? That we need to love people as in Christ. Everyone has been made in the image of God. Everyone has the Spirit if you're a Christian. You can't be a Christian without the Spirit. Everyone has a call and gifts. Absolutely. We love people and honor their journey. Here's the other side of that we love one another with this awareness that we're all broken and we struggle with sin. And we all need times of correction and discipline and a hard word. Yes? That, that there is an idea within the church of tough love. 
right, this phrase, that, again, we can be guilty as a church of majoring on the minors, but there's another side of it. We can also be guilty of a church of minoring on the majors. Yes? And there's time that we need to wrestle through and have hard discussions, whether it's theology, whether it's doctrine, whether it's practice, right? How we're living the faith. There are times that we do need to have tough discussions with one another, that we have to be mindful that truth matters. Paul also says this in Galatians 6. He gives pretty clear instructions. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, judge them and drive them out of your community of faith. No, he doesn't say that, but that's what we do. We hit them with a stick or we never talk to them. Right? So what do we do? You who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves as you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. You see, there is this idea of unity, but that doesn't mean that we lack purity. That doesn't mean that we lack good theology and practice. And one way of carrying one another's burdens is that we don't leave when we're confronted. We don't leave when we're hurt. We, we stay together in community of faith. A couple examples of a friend who believes very differently than I do about LGBTQ issues. And he said to me, Eric, I can't find an evangelical that will stay engaged with me. I said, I love you, brother. I'm here for you. He knows. I've thought and prayed and wrestled. But he just needed someone to talk to. He needed someone to wrestle with. He's such a personal nature. I said, I'm with you. So we remain in community. Does this guy love Jesus? Man, he loves Jesus. Is, is he doing good gospel work in his church? He is. Does he believe very differently than I do? Yes, he does. We're, we're in relationship. We're having tough conversations about that. I was talking with another couple. This was years ago, part of this church. They were growing and they were learning. I was so excited. All of a sudden, they stopped coming. And I went to them and said, what, what's going on? Well, turns out that someone else in the church made an off-handed comment and this gale was very sensitive and she just couldn't come back to church. And I said, listen, we are all broken we're, we're going to make, I'm probably going to make an offhanded comment 
I'm probably going to tell a joke that makes you uncomfortable. Just hang out long enough. You'll hear one, right? <laughs> I'm probably going to be insensitive at times, not intentionally, right? Do that. I, I, I'm going to lack a, a thoughtfulness. But, but part of being unified is having a soft heart but a thick skin. Can I, can I say it that way? Is, is that we are going to hurt, but that's part of the body of Christ. Oftentimes when people leave a church, there's good reasons to leave the church and there's bad reasons to leave the church, but oftentimes when people leave the church, there's a hurt there, there's a disagreement, and it's right in that moment that God wants to work on our soul and grow us as we press into differences of understanding, of practice, of hurts, and he's inviting us to gently restore, forgive, to have the hard conversation. And you know what we do, American church? We bolt. We leave. When things are uncomfortable. And I think that when we do that, we are violating the prayer that Jesus prayed and is praying for oneness. That, that we hang in there. That we wrestle through. That we don't do relationships like the rest of the world does. We don't get hurt and then we leave. We don't disagree and said, I'm starting my own church. We don't do... I was, uh, we were serving at a church in uh, Washington, and there was uh, reformed churches across the street for, from one another. And there was a church split, and the big disagreement was one group wanted to raise money and build out the church because they were growing. And there was another group that was adamant that they should not build the church. They should not extend the church. There was such a fight, and finally the church ended on they would build out the church. The group that was so adamant that they should not build, they left the church and built a new church across the street. Ah, huh. oh, the testimony of Christian love. It's beautiful. Sometimes not so, right? Can we have the humility and the love to wrestle through some difficult things. Yes, there's a time. There's some majors out there that we have to fight for. The gospel, the love of God, who God is. Absolutely, there's some majors. But there's so many minors that we do have to say, grace, grace, isn't it? And sensitively live our lives thoughtful of one another's journey. You know, in the Psalms, there is a blessing that is for us. I, I put this at the bottom of your bulletin. It's a, it's a short psalm, and it's pressing into what Jesus is praying for us about. And there's a blessing at the end says, um, this is Psalm 133, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. Do you notice in Jesus' prayer that it's a testimony to the love of God, how we love one another 
is a testimony to the love of God with one another. It's like precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, down on the collar and his robe. It's a, it's, a, it's a symbol of God's favor, a symbol of God's grace and mercy and blessing, the oil flowing down. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. Again, the, a, a physical picture of the, the spiritual blessing for there the Lord, where? Where there's unity, where there's brotherly and sisterly love, where there's oneness, where there's connectedness and together, togetherness. For there the Lord, in that place, the Lord bestows his blessing. Even life forevermore. I want to live in my family and friends, my relationships as a person of peace, as a person of unity, of a peace, a person of togetherness. I long for this community of faith to be a place that's receiving the blessing and the favor of God. Because we're not cutting bait and leaving at the slightest of difficulties or differences, that we, we get to wrestle, we get to struggle, we get to have hard conversations to confront. This communion table, there's a sadness in our history that we've divided over how this represents Christ. I think there's a sadness in the heart of Jesus. This table, as, as Beth mentioned, with the Apostles' Creed, and this table is meant to be a unifying aspect of the church through all the generations and even over all the denominations. You know, when I was in Lebanon, it was so neat to participate in communion with a community of faith on the other side of the world. Right, that to, to be unified in spirit with this group of folks was just one of the most moving parts of my mission trip. I was aligned with them. Now, in a true sign of unity, I have all these Lebanese Facebook friends. They've all... But Jesus intentioned that his church would not be a movement of division, but would be a movement of unity. And even those outside the faith, even the enemies, even those that don't believe, even those who persecute us, he said, love them too. Live as a person of peace, of unity, and oneness. 
So Jesus, we are gathered together here in your name. With different journeys, different perspectives, even different backgrounds and denominations and way of seeing things. But Lord, we want to, as an expression of our shared faith, take communion together, Lord. Lord, we, there's a, this beautiful mystery that you invite us into the very fellowship God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we get to partake in the life and the community of you, I, that's inconceivable. That's amazing. But Lord, would you bind us together as daughters and sons adopted into your community of faith as we take your body and your blood together. Amen. I'd like to invite the elders forward. We do communion in a slightly different way. This one, I'm so glad we're doing it this way. You have a, a station for each section, so um, at the appropriate time, you exit your section to your right. Come and take the elements. Don't take them at the table at this moment. Hold on to the elements and return to the section. And when we're all together, when we all have the elements together, we'll take them as one, as a sign of unity together. It was the night that Jesus was betrayed. He knew that his disciples would be scattered he knew that because of fear, they would flee. And perhaps because of that reason, it was so crucial at that moment that he would introduce the sacred sacrament that of his scattered disciples was meant to unify them. He took the bread after he had given thanks he blessed it and he broke it. And he said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Saying, remember that even though each, every one of us, all of us are broken, all of us are gonna stumble, all are going to make mistakes. We're going to hurt one another that Christ's death on the cross covers that. So we get to be a people of forgiveness and restoration. And in the same way, after dinner, he took the cup and he said, a new covenant which is established in my blood, a covenant between us and God and one another that's never to be broken, a covenant that is eternal, 
that represents life in Christ with one another. Take, eat, and drink in remembrance of him. If you are a follower of Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter your your social background, rich or poor, black or white, nothing else matters at the table. It's just whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ. All is ready. Would you come?